thank you so much, music team. We appreciate you serving us so well tonight. And um, I know it's one of my wife's favorite uh, things to do is to be up here and sing with her daughter and um, I should say our daughter. But um, Kelly loves Christmas and every year around the beginning of November, she starts looking for Christmas songs that the music team could sing and either teach the congregation or do as a special. And um, when she shared that last song with me, we both sat there in the kitchen and agreed that that is not your typical Christmas song. Kind of a different take on Silent Night, a song that we're all familiar with. But most Christmas songs um, focus on the joy and the peace and the hope of the Christmas season. And I would say that, by and large, Christmas songs ignore the fact that for many people, Christmas is not the most wonderful time of year, but one of the most difficult times of the year. And rather than feeling merry and bright, people feel sad and things look bleak. Chaotic would be a better description of their lives than peaceful. I don't think I need to say this, but again, I think it's often forgotten that Christmas is not a joyous occasion for everyone. Some actually dread the holidays because it's such a stressful and sorrowful season as, as they grieve over the memory of lost loved ones or they struggle with unresolved family tensions and conflicts or as they worry about how they're going to come up with the money to pay their next electric bill, let alone provide presents for everyone that they want to. And no amount of eggnog or hot chocolate or caroling or parties or lights or bells can overcome the fear and anxiety and pain and despair in the hearts of so many during this time of year. Well, if that describes you in any way tonight, you need to know that you're not alone and you are not forgotten this Christmas. In fact, there's a side of the Christmas story that is usually overlooked and even ignored that I think is for people just like you. And undoubtedly, the biblical account of the birth of Christ is filled with great joy and hope, but all was not merry and bright like it's typically portrayed. And the jubilation of Jesus' birth was mixed with great hesitation and hardship and heartache. And normally we choose to, to focus on all the cheerful, hopeful things of the Christmas story, the, the hopeful side, the cheerful side. But tonight I want to do something different, and hopefully it won't get me fired, um, or nobody will get up and walk out. But, but I want to focus on the sorrowful, but equally hopeful side of the Christmas story. I want us to consider together the, the doubts and fears of that first Christmas, the troubles, the hardships 
of that first Christmas, the, the pains and the heartaches of that first Christmas. And in order to do that, we won't be able to just look at one passage like we normally do, but we're going to have to look at a number of passages that describe the first Christmas in chronological order, kind of going back, if you've been coming to church the last few Sundays here at Lakeside, we're going to go back over those passages that we've been reading every Sunday and kind of do a Christmas mashup, if you will. You know what a mashup is, right? They take songs or you know, sermons and they mash them all together and that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to do a Christmas story mashup. And so the first thing I want us to look at are the doubts and the fears of that first Christmas. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. And I want to just read for you the announcement of the birth of Christ that the angel Gabriel made to Mary. Familiar text, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now again, there's so much here to thrill our hearts. But again, we're not looking at the positive side tonight. We're looking at what you could call the negative side. And so put yourself in Mary's sandals here for a second. And imagine how confusing... And disconcerting it would be to try to process in your mind if you hadn't had sexual relationships with any man, but you were going to have a baby. As if that was even possible. And besides, this was not your classic angel announcement to some old lady who was past the age of childbearing that God said, hey, you're going to have a baby. That, that was part of the Old Testament. In fact, he even mentioned Elizabeth here, who was Zacharias' wife, the mother of, the future mother of John the Baptist, and she was beyond, she was barren. She was beyond the age of childbearing. That was commonplace in the Bible. God was doing that miracle all the time. But this was a first. This was incomparable. This was humanly impossible And so there was Mary filled with the wonder of just receiving 
the highest honor of any woman who had ever lived, that she was going to be the mother of the son, the one and only son of the God of the universe. I mean, that's something you want to get on social media right away and get the word out, right? Hey, look at me, look at me, look at what I got, look what I had an opportunity, look at, right? I mean, this is, man, who, but who could she tell? (laughs) I mean, who would believe her? That's crazy. And so Mary knew in her heart the worst case scenario was that she would get stoned, if not for adultery, for blasphemy. The best case scenario was that she would be ridiculed and shunned as a wicked, immoral woman. And so there was a lot of doubt and fear that she had to deal with. Even though she stepped forward in faith and said, here am I, be it done to me as, you, as your word says. You got to know she was trying to work that thing out in her mind. And she was going to have to deal with the consequences, good or bad. And as you know, she wasn't the only one who had to deal with these doubts and fears. Her fiancé, Joseph, faced the same dilemma. Turn back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. And Matthew fills in the, the gap here and provides the color commentary on this announcement from Gabriel to Mary, while the same angel showed up and made a similar announcement to Joseph. Probably because God knew that he wasn't going to believe Mary. (laughs) And so unless an angel from heaven came and said, hey, she's not lying to you. She's legit. That's exactly what I told her, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now that might be a little bit confusing at first about, well, were they engaged? Were they married? What was going on there? Well, it's likely that Joseph and Mary were in their early teens when they were faced with what we could call a providential predicament. And in that culture, marriages were arranged by the parents and contracts were often negotiated without the children's consent, and once a contract was agreed upon, a dowry was paid by the man's family to the family of the future bride, and the two individuals were betrothed or engaged to one another. And during this engagement period, the couple was considered married, 
And the only way to break off that engagement was by getting a divorce. And yet, even though they were considered husband and wife, they continued to live with their parents for one year. I know, you're all thinking, that's weird. Well, this year-long waiting period had a purpose, and it provided time for the husband to prepare a home for his wife to live in, and it was also for the purpose of demonstrating the purity of the bride. And if she was found to be pregnant during this period of time, she obviously was not a virgin as her parents had, had pledged that she was. And if she was found to be unfaithful, she would be convicted and sentenced to death by stoning. That was the law, Deuteronomy chapter 22. But if the bride's purity was proven over a year's time, the husband would then go to her house and in this grand processional march lead his bride back to his home where they would begin living together as husband and wife and at that point consummate their marriage physically. And so all that to say, Mary and Joseph were in that one-year waiting period when Mary was found to be with child. And when Mary broke the news to Joseph that she was pregnant, put yourself in his sandals for a second. I imagine he was both devastated and bewildered. And to add insult to injury, he was probably wondering what would possess my fiance to come up with this harebrained, absurd story to justify her infidelity that she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Right, Mary, seriously? And so Joseph agonized over how to handle this awkward situation. And whatever he did, what was once an honorable, undulterated relationship would now forever be clouded with scandal and suspicion. Knowing the character of these two, just what we pick up from the rest of Scripture, I'm sure he couldn't believe that she was guilty of immorality. But at the same time, he couldn't believe her explanation of how she got pregnant. And he knew no one else would either. And so in his mind, he had no other choice but to divorce her. But he wanted to do it privately and discreetly so as not to make a spectacle of Mary and to shield her from public shame and disgrace, not to mention to protect her from the possibility of being stoned to death. The good news here is that even though Joseph and Mary knew that no one would believe their story, and that rumors were just going to be a part of their life and a part of their son's life, they believed. And that's all that mattered. And in time, this faithful couple would be vindicated by how perfectly and powerfully their son lived his life. And people would have to admit that the only explanation for this supernatural life was a supernatural birth. And so there were some doubts, there were some fears at that first Christmas. There was also troubles and hardships. There was troubles and hardships. Look at Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and this is 
the account, the narrative of Jesus' actual birth, Luke chapter 2, again, a very familiar text, verses 1 through 7. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Sirius Augustus, Caesar Augustus, excuse me, that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Well, you've heard this part of the story, right? Joseph uh, had to go to Bethlehem to take part in the census uh, that was ordered by the the, the rulers of the day, Uh, but he didn't want to leave Mary behind because she was about to give birth. He didn't want to missed that. He wanted to be there for her during that time. And so uh, he traveled with her from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a, about six miles south of Jerusalem, which meant it was about 80 miles from Nazareth. So you've got an 80-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, that's about the distance between here and Kima. I did a little map thing to find out what's 80 miles, something we could relate to, right? So from, from here to Kima, you've all been to Kima, right? League City down there. That's about how far it was, which isn't too far for a pregnant lady in an SUV with air conditioning. No big deal, right? But this was a pregnant lady on a donkey. Now, I don't remember everything the doctor said when my wife was pregnant, but I do remember one thing the doctor said. He said, don't ride a horse. Don't, don't want you to go horseback riding anytime in those nine months of being pregnant. And so when you're nine months pregnant or close to it, depending on how long it took him to get there, that, that's not the time to be going on an 80-mile bumpy ride on a donkey. And if that wasn't hard enough, When they finally got there, she goes into labor. Maybe that bumpy ride kind of helped that. I'm not sure. And the only place to stay in Bethlehem was totally booked. And Bethlehem, as you could imagine in those days, it was a small town, but it was was totally overcrowded uh, because of the census, everybody coming there. And so they didn't have enough rooms to accommodate everyone, and so there was no place for them to stay. But more importantly, there was no place to have a baby. And ladies, this is where you can relate to this, way better than us guys can. But can you imagine, ladies, the fear, the loneliness that must have swept through Mary's heart and mind when they were turned away from the inn and they had to settle down in this stable? It was dirty and it reeked of animal smells. There was no adjustable bed, no clean sheets, no fetal monitor, no lamp, no heat lamp, no cute bassinet. There was no nurses, no doctors, no midwives. And yet in that frightening cold 
primitive, unsterilized environment, she gave birth to a child, wrapped him in some old cloths, and laid him in a feeding trough. I mean, everything about this story speaks of poverty and destitution. Not having the means to provide. And the next thing you know, some shepherds working the night shift on the outskirts of Bethlehem show up and tell Joseph and Mary about what they just experienced. And look down at uh, verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And Luke goes on to record, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let, let us go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. What statement? Specifically that for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That must have provided huge comfort, huge relief to Mary and Joseph as they were still trying to get their bearings of having just had a baby in a stable. And so there were doubts, there was fears, there was hardships and troubles. But there was also pains and heartaches at that first Christmas. We're there in Luke chapter 2, just look ahead a few more verses you may remember after Jesus was born, like any uh, other Jewish boy, uh, on the eighth day after their birth, they would go to the temple, they would be brought to the temple to be circumcised and to officially name them. So verse 21, and when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And they would present the offering, the sacrifice to accompany the birth of a child. And if you remember, there was a man there, an old man named Simeon. Verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. How cool is that? Hey, Simeon, you're not going to die until you actually see the Messiah with your own eyes. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out 
for him the custom of the law. Then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Mary's heart must have just soared as she heard this uh, prophetic word from this faithful old man, Simeon. But that's not all that Simeon said. Verse 33, And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said "Mary, to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Up until that point, It's been nothing but positive. Everyone had only good things to say about Jesus. Gabriel, Elizabeth, Zacharias, the angels, the shepherds. And Simeon is the first and the only character in the Christmas story to say anything negative about baby Jesus. And he, he really, what he was doing here is he was giving a prophetic warning that included Three images. First of all, a stone. He said that Jesus would be a stumbling block. And even though their special son had come to save all men from their sins, not everyone would be saved. Some would arrogantly reject Christ and pay the penalty for their sins by spending eternity in hell. At the same time, some would humbly receive him as their Savior and Lord and have their sins forgiven and be raised up with him and spend eternity in heaven. And yet, despite the fact that many would reject Christ, he would become the foundation stone of the church. Simeon also said he would be a sign. And from the word, from the moment the word got out that he had been born, he faced opposition more on that in a moment. But the point I wanted to get to here was that, lastly, Simeon also predicted the suffering that Mary would endure as the mother of the Messiah. And as the opposition and persecution against her beloved son increased throughout his life and ministry, her pain and sorrow increased as well. And her grief reached its climax as she stood and watched her son at the foot of the cross suffer the agony of a crucifixion. And that's what Simeon meant when he said, a sword will pierce even your own soul. It would feel like a Roman broadsword just going through her soul. And so it started as a positive prophecy ended on a somber note by foreshadowing the death of Christ, implying that this little boy who was eight days old, just a week old, was going to die. But in dying, he would live up to his name. 
Well, again, if that wasn't enough pain and heartache to deal with, within a year or two after Jesus was born, they had to flee for their lives to Egypt so Herod couldn't kill him. And for this, we need to go back to Matthew chapter 2. And this is where we'll end tonight, where we began. I read this account at the beginning of the service. But looking at verse 13, now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared. This is after the Magi left. They appeared to Joseph, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, if you don't know anything about Herod, Herod was the, the, the king who ruled over Palestine from 30 CB, 37 BC to 4 BC. So he was uh, on the throne, if you will, when Christ was born. Uh, his father had done some fa- favors for the Romans, and as payment, the Herod family had been given the right to rule over Judea, which was under Roman domination. And at, at his coronation, Caesar Augustus had given Herod, this is Herod the Great, by the way, Herod the Great, the title, the King of the Jews, which he liked. He liked going by that title. And, uh, and so, obviously, he was troubled by the news that a baby had been born who was who? King of the Jews. So this was a threat to him. And Herod's paranoia was legendary. He slaughtered his own family members that he considered a threat to his throne, his reign. In fact, Augustus said about Herod that it was better to be Herod's sow than his son because his sow had a better chance of surviving. That's the kind of guy this was. In fact, his last ruthless act in life was to imprison the most distinguished Jewish citizens in Jerusalem and command that they be slaughtered the moment that he died. And this is why he did it. He said, quote, the people will not weep when I die, and I want them weeping even if they weep over someone else. So, you ever had a guy like that? A person like that in your life? (laughs) Someone that ruthless, that merciless. There's people alive like that today. And you may have one of them as your boss. (laughs) You may have one of them as your husband. You may have a neighbor like that. But all that to say, this merciless massacre of innocent babies and and toddlers was all, all in a day's work Herod. And when he found out that the the Magi had outsmarted him, he flew into a jealous rage and attempted to eliminate his young rival by going on a killing spree in Bethlehem. 
Verse 16, then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. By the way, the first mention of Bethlehem in the Bible is in connection with the death of Jacob's favored wife, Rachel, in Genesis chapter 35. Rachel died, if you remember, giving birth to Benjamin, and she was buried in Ramah here, which is close to Bethlehem, where Herod's awful massacre took place. And so the reason why Matthew's recording this Old Testament reference is because many consider Rachel to be the the mother of the nation of Israel, and that's why she's pictured weeping over these children, along with their parents, these children who were massacred by Herod. So there you have it. The other side of the Christmas story. And it's got all the sad, scary, painful elements that so many of us experience living here in a fallen, broken, sinful world. It includes getting pregnant out of wedlock, dealing with divorce, or at least the prospect of it, enduring physical discomfort and pain and being poor and destitute, receiving a disheartening prognosis about the future, facing the threat of death. And yet all this is part of the story of the birth of God's Son, who came to rescue us from our sin, which is why all of us experience these sorts of troubles and hardships and Heartaches, we live in a sin-cursed body, in a sin-cursed world. And I love the hope that Titus gives in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. He says, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's a perfect description of our world today. It's a dog-eat-dog world. That's the world in which we live, where there's all sorts of doubts and fears and hardships and troubles and pains and, and heartaches. But Titus goes on. He says, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared. I'll be honest with you, I never thought about that as a Christmas text, but it fits. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared in the form of that baby in the manger, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
You see, ultimately, the Christmas story points us from the manger to the cross. And from the cross to the grave, and from the grave to heaven. And that's where the hope lies. Because the Bible says in heaven there will be no more doubts and fears, troubles and hardships, pains and heartaches, there are more, no more tears, no more pain. And so I say all that for those of you that maybe came here tonight feeling like you were the only one that wasn't uh, feeling it. Feeling what? The joy of Christmas. That you feel like your pain, your grief, whatever you're going through, your situation, your destitution, your trouble, your hardship has been ignored. Well, others may have ignored it, but God hasn't. And that's why he sent Jesus Christ. I want to end by reading for you a quote from an article I read this week that I thought was so helpful. And it was simply titled, Christmas Doesn't Ignore Your Pain. Christmas doesn't ignore our many pains, neither does it bid us wallow in them. Christmas takes them seriously, more seriously than any secular celebration can, and reminds us that our God has seen our pain and heard our cries for help, and he himself has come to deliver us. Christmas in this age doesn't guarantee merry and bright, not yet, but it does promise that merriness and brightness are breaking in. Christmas, at its best, gives us a peek of the uncompromised joy that is coming. And as we glimpse it, even from afar, we have a foretaste. Like the Apostle Paul, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We may be overwhelmingly sorrowful at Christmas, and yet in Christ, by His Spirit, God may give us the wherewithal to rejoice. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this other side of the Christmas story. It seems so much more realistic. It seems so much more where we're at. Less miraculous. Um, more real and tangible because it's where we live our lives most of the time. But we're grateful, Lord, that there's great hope in it. And that just the things about Christmas, the, the singing and the gift-giving and just the merriment and the parties and the celebration, I pray that in that, no matter where we're at in our lives, we would just see, would understand we're just seeing a glimpse, a tiny, tiny glimpse of what heaven will be like where it will be Christmas all the time. Every day will be Christmas. In fact, it'll be better than Christmas. 
And so may we just be able to celebrate, even if we are dealing with doubts and fears and pains and heartaches and troubles and hardships this Christmas season, that we would be able to just sit and enjoy this season. And if for no other reason, that it reminds us that something better is ahead. And so, Father, I pray, if there is anyone here that has yet to commit their life to Christ, that tonight they would understand what your word says, that they're a sinner, but they would also believe that Jesus came to die and take the punishment for their sin. And that if they were willing to turn away from their life of sin and commit their life to follow and obey Jesus as their Lord, as their master from this day forward, that tonight could be the night of their salvation. Lord, I pray you'd give us courage, give us winsomeness, even tomorrow as we may be interacting with family members who don't know the Lord, that we would just wisely and winsomely weave Christ into the conversation in a way that they can't deny the truth of it, and that we would live our lives in such a way that we would honor and glorify the name of Christ, that we would make Christ attractive, make Christ appealing to those that have yet to come to know him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.